This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery... Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Greetings to the January episode, listeners. I'm news editor Elizabeth Pearson and I'm joined in the studio today by editor Chris Bramley. Hi. And staff writer Ian Todd. Hello. As this podcast go out, we're rapidly approaching the end of 2019. Uh, it's been a really great year for all things space. Uh, this year, humanity has looked at everything from asteroids to the moon uh, to black holes at the centre of our galaxy, right the way throughout to the furthest reaches of our universe. You can read about all about the latest of these discoveries in the January issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine. But for this podcast, we're going to actually take a look back at the biggest stories of 2019, starting with Ian. Yeah, as you said, Ezzy, um, it's, it's been a fantastic year for astronomy and spaceflight. And um, when you think about it, it the, the kind of year started the way it meant to go on, really, because... Um, um, Straight into 2019, on, on New Year's Day, we had the uh, New Horizons flyby of um, what was called Ultima Thule, um, uh, a Kuiper Belt object, um, and it did a, it performed a, a flyby of this object. I mean, uh, for anyone who's kind of unaware, uh, New Horizons was obviously the um, spacecraft that flew by uh, Pluto um, in July 2015, and then after that, it kind of continued out and towards the the edge of the solar system and flew by this Kuiper Belt object. The Kuiper Belt being uh, a kind of ring of uh, icy and rocky debris in the edge of the solar system. Um, it's essentially the, the edge of the disk out of which the solar system formed about five billion years ago. Um, and Ultima Thule, which um, was its nickname, the object's nickname at the time, uh, has since been renamed as uh, 486958 Arakoth, uh, Arakoth being apparently a Native American term uh, meaning sky. Um, this, this object, um, it was quite weird looking at images of it because it kind of looks like a a snowman almost. It's got like two lobes, a big lobe attached to a smaller lobe. Um, but it turned out that that was just the kind of the, the 2D image of it. And in reality, the, the, the lobes are a lot flatter. Um, but it, essentially, it uh, formed and stayed where it is in its orbit for um, about 4.5 billion years. So uh, the flyby was a chance to get a relatively close look at it. And um, yeah, as we've kind of said before, you know, studying these primordial objects like uh, asteroids and Kuiper Belt objects and things like that is a chance to kind of... Um, Get get more clues as to what the early solar system might have been like, because I mean, I suppose ultimately these these objects, while they are blasted by radiation and micrometeorite impacts, they are largely untouched, unscathed by um, radiation from the sun. 
uh, and other things like that. Um, so it gives us a good idea of um, yeah what the early, early solar system might have been like, and it all kind of pertains to this question of how did our solar system form and how did life arise on Earth, I guess. I think one of the things that really sort of stuns me so much about when you, you hear about this New Horizons things, because it's it's so far away, mm. it takes a long time for it to, to download basically all of its images. It was, I think it took 16 months to get everything down from the Pluto encounter, and it's going to take 20 months to get everything down from the Arakoth. So yeah. it's still going to be, you know, another six months before we find out before they have the everything that they learned from this mission, and then like years and years longer to actually go through it all and 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 analyze it. Yeah, I mean, I was speaking to um, uh, Kerry Lesser, who's one of the uh, New Horizon scientists, shortly after the the flyby, and he was saying that they 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 essentially operate on what. Um, used to be a dial-up internet connection. I don't know if, any, if anyone, <laughs> any of our <laughs> younger listeners might not not remember that, but um, we certainly do. When you when you used to connect to the internet and you'd hear the screeching sounds in the dial-up and it would take ages to upload uh, to, to download a single image. I suppose like when they were, were making New Horizons, you know, what was it, probably about 15, 20 years ago yeah. now, that was cutting-edge technology. That's, right, yeah. That's the thing you always forget. You think that these spacecraft must be like cutting-edge, absolutely... The, the the best technology there is out there. But actually, it's built with the technology that was on the market five years ago when they were designing it. Mm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Especially when you're going out to the edge of the solar system and you're having to travel so far. Yeah. It hopefully really becomes an issue. Hopefully their dial-up's a bit more reliable than mine when <laughs> I was a child. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the, the um, physics of the, of the flyby are, are, are pretty astonishing. Um, so it flew uh, 35,000 kilometres from uh, the object um, at a, a speed of 14 kilometers per second, which is, is kind of, if you imagine doing that on Earth in a car, for example, fly, you know, driving past something at 14 kilometers per second, three and a half thousand kilometers away, you probably wouldn't see very much. Um, it uh, captured images, it took spectra, it measured the uh, solar wind around the object and found evidence for water, ice, organic molecules, and methanol, um, kind of ultimately searching for, for the ingredients for life. Um, and it found that the um, uh, the object, as we said, consists of two lobes. So one's about nine kilometers radius, and one's about seven kilometers radius. And and they know now that these were two separate objects that were orbiting each other, um, and that they collided. But apparently, the uh, collision was was really really slow, like perhaps you know maybe just a few millimeters a second. And there was one uh, NASA scientist who said, if you want to recreate this at home, just walk into a wall. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully we'll get attached to the wall. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which, which, which we don't advise that you do. But <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as we move on throughout the year, there was another big announcement, uh, which Chris is going to tell us about. Yes. Um, what, one of the uh, groundbreaking uh, announcements was um, a photo of a supermassive black hole that was revealed to the world on the 10th of April. Um, they, it was quite a good um, way that it was released. They did six simultaneous press conferences around the world um, to present um, this image. Um, it was the black hole at the heart of M87, um, which is about a thousand times bigger than the black hole at the centre of the Milky Way. Um, and it was um, since been named Pauahi, and it's 56 million light years away. Uh, it really is an extraordinary image. Um, the supermassive black hole's horizon in M87 shows up as a dark shadow, and it's backlit by intense radio waves, um, which uh, is the matter that's heated as it swirls down through the um, accretion disk of gas and dust as it's orbiting um, the black hole. Uh, and the halo around it is brighter on one side than the other, which is caused by um, this the matter being sucked in. Um, and uh, the matter is, is is sucked into the black hole um, because of the intense gravity um, in the in this singularity. It's so intense that uh, um, nothing, not even light, can escape. Um, so at the Event Horizon Telescope, it's uh, an array of nine radio dishes scattered around the world, and they've been harnessed together um, to create an interferometer um, which which essentially simulates a giant telescope uh, the size of Earth. Um, and the scientists found that the best wavelength to use for observing um, was 1.33 millimetres. It's then possible to see through um, the, the accretion disk 
and our galaxy and Earth's atmosphere are transparent to radio waves at this wavelength, although water vapour in our atmosphere can be a problem. Um, so uh, the uh, EHT astronomers chose a time of year in April to maximise the dryness of the telescopes. And getting the signal sy synchronised involved using a super-stable atomic clock. In 2017, a total of 960 drives, each with a capacity of 6 or 7 terabytes, and capable of storing 1.1 to 2 billion photos, recorded a whopping 5 petabytes to the disks, and they ended up weighing more than a tonne, which is incredible. Um, so um, research behind the data for the black hole has revealed that it weighs in at 6.5 million times the mass of the sun. I, I think what you were saying there about the, the number of disks that it took to take this information. That, that's what the thing that really blows my mind about this project. When you hear about it, it's, it's not only is getting, you know, nine radio telescopes to talk to each other incredibly difficult. It's just the logistics of getting everything to the same place. So I think I, I seem to remember hearing that it took, because one of the telescopes was based at the South Pole, and they had to wait for the seasons to change so that they yeah. could fly it back to MIT where it all got analysed. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, because the, the, the data was delivered like manually by... Oh, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't like kind of beamed. It was like... It's, yeah, it was too it's, much. There was too much of it for yeah, them to kind the, of um, send over the internet. When you get to a certain level, the, the quickest way to deliver something is to put it on a hard disk, chuck it in the back of your car and drive it over. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really love the idea of these telescope arrays and I think we're, we're going to see a lot more of that in the future especially with like this, something like this, the, the square kilometre array mm. but it, it's essentially the idea that if you have a dish in uh, as the square kilometre array is going to be if you have a dish in Australia and a dish in South Africa you're effectively creating uh, a radio telescope with the aperture of the distance between those two yeah. yes, those two right. dishes absolutely incredible there was something else I was kind of um, thinking about with regard to the, the actual image itself because I had the uh, halo of light that's going around it was, as we said, a result of the kind of infalling matter, which kind of generates this energy. Mm -hmm. But but wasn't it also related to starlight being bent around the mass of the of the black hole? There is. It's a it, it's a little from column A and a little from column B. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when you look at most black holes, you see that really kind of uh, a bright accretion disk around it, and that's how we've seen in inverted commas yeah. uh, most black holes up until now but this yeah it was mostly that picture was mostly starlight being bent around it because um, it's it's just so big <laughs> but it's, it's quite funky that there's this sort of like quirks of general relativity that lets us see this because that's the whole point of black holes is they're completely dark and if it wasn't for these weird properties that they have we'd never be able to see them yeah it's also kind of cool with like the revelations in gravitational waves and and, and various other things over the past few years um it's kind of like a hundred years since einstein's general theory of relativity we're just kind of we're getting really good kind of evidence of it and kind of proving it right all the time and kind of looking back going yeah einstein was right <laughs> <laughs> it does seem to be every time they go this this experiment will prove whether or not einstein's right he was. <laughs> Which is good. It means we don't have to go back to the drawing board. Yeah. Uh, then moving uh, on throughout the year, in July, there was a uh, pretty big anniversary that I'm sure everybody here remembers. Um, it was the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 landings. Um, and we, of course, covered it extensively in the magazine and uh, through our website, www.skyatnightmagazine.com. Um, but there was there was all kinds of events all around the country. Uh, there was the Blue Dot Festival at Jodrell Bank, which myself and Ian went along to. Um, and in fact, you can listen to our podcast from there. Um, and that was that was quite interesting, actually, because they had loads of stuff there that was commemorating not just the the Apollo landings, but but how we've moved on since then as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, and they were playing uh, the sounds of the transmissions between the astronauts and, and ground control so you could kind of hear the astronauts mm. voices you know those kind of like, mission control you know that yeah. kind of stuff in, in really real cool. time in as real well. time oh, that's yeah, right that was quite fun. I think at one point I was standing outside my tent and it was quite late because it was they were doing it in real time and you could just in the distance you could hear like you know you could hear Buzz Aldrin's voice you know, <laughs> going around it the campsite it was very odd um <laughs> Um, but there was also there was a host of the BBC ran a whole bunch of uh, documentaries. Um, there was various films out. There was Apollo Eleven documentary, and we all also went up to London to see the First Man, um, which was a biopic about uh, Neil Armstrong, um, which I think we all very much enjoyed. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it yeah. was really good, wasn't it? 
but it's it's just all of the stuff that was going on really proves how much there is there is interest still in Apollo and and even in the moon as well. For, for, since since Apollo, the, the moon's kind of been a bit neglected. Um, people haven't really been back there. People haven't really seen it or talked about mm. it very much since since the end of of uh, the Apollo space race. Um, I think the 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 Soviets did a couple of missions after Apollo finished, but until then, it wasn't until 1990 that you had the first orbital mission. Um, mm. And now we have people trying to go back to its surface. Um, so this year we had Chang'e four back on the 3rd of January, 2019. Um, and they actually landed, that's Chinese mission. It was their second landing mission to the moon. And it's the first ever one that actually touched down on the far side of the moon, which was logistically a bit of a problem. They had to have a, a relay station because obviously you can't have radio contact with the far side because the moon's in the way. Mm. <laughs> um, and so that was a satellite, wasn't it, orbiting yeah, beyond yeah, the, the moon? I believe it's called Quang. Go, I think is how you pronounce mm. it, um, which means Magpie Bridge, um, uh. which is all, all of the names of the uh, Chinese space program is all based on uh, Chinese myths around the moon um, and so lovely Great. ones out there. Um, and they also, that Chang'e 4 also had the first ever, uh, they had a little biodome on it, which had some seeds and things on it. Mm. And they actually grew a cotton seed on the surface of the moon. Mm. Um, it, it Sprouted and then died about two days later, but they they did manage to to to, to grow something. Mm. And they had a rover as well, didn't they? They that, did. They had the somebody. the U two two, which is U two, and then it was the second one, so it was two. <laughs> um, just to make that clear. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I I know we've kind of discussed this before, but I I always think it's a bit of a shame, like with uh, with NASA and DESA, um, whenever they do a mission, like a a planetary probe or something like that, or even like the, the kind of lunar reconnaissance orbiters. We we get so much information and and, and and amazing images and detail and things like that, but um, I don't know. The Chinese space agency don't seem as willing to kind of give up the fruits of their success. It's very um, so. The, it's the similar thing that the Soviets did back in the space race, which is they basically don't tell you what's. They give you vague ideas about what they're doing, but they don't give you too many details until they're. 100% sure it's been successful. Yeah. Mm. Um, but even then, yeah, finding pictures and things from the surface is quite tricky. But mm. I, it's just, it's a different philosophy, um, I think. They're, they're way more secretive, aren't yeah. they? I mean, yeah. Which, which is a shame, because obviously we, we like pictures. Mm. <laughs> I yeah, want to see what the moon looks like. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, then, uh, if we go forward to April, uh, the 11th of April, uh, the first entrant for the Lunar X Prize... Um, made its way to the moon, uh, despite the fact that the Lunar X Prize had been cancelled a year before. Um, and that was the Bereshit lander from Space IL, which is an Israeli team. Um, and they got very close to the surface. They actually managed to, most of the launch, everything was absolutely fine. And then shortly before they were about to touch down, there was a problem with the main engine and they unfortunately crashed. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they did land on the moon just a bit harder than they wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they did actually land quite close to where they meant to come down. So that's one that's good thing. Um, one of the, the reasons why it really made headlines, though, was because there was a, a bunch of the things on board. Um, there was also uh, there was some various things, like they had the entire entirety of Wikipedia printed out. Um, <laughs> very, very small, obviously, because that's quite a lot of it. Mm. Um and some various other mementos. But they also had some biological samples, including some freeze-dried tardigrades or water bears or moss piglets. Yeah, it's incredible, these these um, kind of microscopic, uh, robust creatures, and they can actually shut down all their organs. I, I was reading that they they can kind of turn this, the water in their cells into effectively glass, and they can right. shut down for like 10, 10 years they've known to be able mm. to survive, and then they can be rehydrated. So I suppose the idea was to... I mean, was the... The idea was to basically put the tardigrades on the moon and then bring them back and rehydrate them. I don't know if they, I think it was it was the idea was that they're there so that if somebody in the future did want to go yes. and investigate them and sort of see there was no plans to go back and yeah. get them because um, that sample return really is pretty difficult. Yeah. very difficult. <laughs> um, <laughs> but also apparently there was like blood and hair from some of the um, mm. some of the science team yeah. and uh, what you were saying there about about the, the uh, printed out Wikipedia. Uh, it was like. Um, etched onto 
glass that you could only see with like a, 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 a microscope with like a thousand mm. times magnification. Yeah, it was like you could basically mm. you could only weird. read it with an electron microscope. Yeah. I also read that they had like lots of kind of classic works of literature and bizarrely they had um, the, the secrets of some of David Copperfield's magic tricks. Wow. <laughs> it was, I think the idea is it was supposed to be one of these, we want to put a, a sort of an entire compendium of human knowledge on the moon. Yeah. <laughs> but we only managed to eat those three things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think it's more the idea of it than anything yeah. else. But then I suppose if you um, any future uh, landers on the moon, any future uh, astronauts will be uh, well entertained. Yes. Yeah. You can, if you get a really, really big magnifying glass, yes. you can read yeah. the entirety of yeah. Wikipedia circa 2018. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then finally in September, uh, the Indian space mission, Vikram, uh, attempted to land on the moon. Um, once again, they got very close to the surface when it was just leaning over to try and get a better look at the the, the ground as it was coming in, um, their lander, and something went wrong. It flipped over, and the thrusters that were supposed to be stopping it from going into the surface were now pointing the wrong direction and fired at its speed into the surface. Yeah. Mm, mm. Um which was a shame. Mm. It was uh, India's first attempt at, at, at landing on the moon. Um, mm. Bereshit, I should say, is actually the first uh, privately funded mm. effort to land on the moon. So it's this year has been an, uh, it's been people who haven't it's newcomers into the the space flight age mm. Um, mm. have been been making their way to the moon this year, which I think is quite interesting. It's fantastic that more nations and also mm. um, uh, more kind of organisations uh, are. Um, taking up the challenge of, of space exploration as well. It can only yeah. be a good thing for, for science that more more people and more missions are, yeah. are doing it, can't it? Yeah. It has, there's been a, bit of a couple of problems um, with that, though. Uh, as we mentioned mm. earlier, that was the, was the biological samples on the Bereshit lander. Um, the problem with that is that they didn't tell anybody that they were there. Mm. Um, yeah. Mm. Which is, it's probably all right. The moon is very dead and desolate. It's it's when you don't have to clean your spacecraft particularly stringently before you land there, um, mm. as you would with somewhere, say, like Mars or Titan. Um, but it is one of those things that people are concerned that are people just throwing mm. things mm. out into space. Yes, yeah, and it's yeah. properly uh, monitored, doesn't it? Absolutely. If, I mean, if, for example, that there, there were a, a private company that sent a spacecraft to something like Enceladus, you know, a, a moon known to have the conditions mm. to potentially support life, and a similar thing happened, would that then contaminate, you mm. know, the uh, body mm. and potentially remove any signs of of life or anything like that? So, mm. it it definitely called um called the kind of ethics of space flight into question and there was definitely a lot, a lot of debate in social media as a result. Mm. That said, they did, uh, I think NASA changed their official guidelines earlier this year, I think about October time, um, which was they they now think that they don't need to be as careful with their planetary protection procedures. Oh, right. Mm. Um, because if you're going taking an Earth bacteria to an alien world, it's going to be the conditions are going to be so harsh mm. that it's probably not going to survive. Mm. And and even if it did, it wouldn't be better suited to that environment than something that did happen to evolve there. Yeah. Mm. Um, so they are still trying to, to 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 keep these things clean, but they're not going to be. At, they they don't think there's a need to be as stringent as possible. So oh. does that mean with something like you know like we know that that Cassini was purposely crashed into Saturn um, for that very so. Would that, that re retrospectively maybe not have been done? Uh, no, that would have been done, but that's because Cassini had a, I believe it had a nu some nuclear power sources on board. Ah, right. Um, and that meant that when you, if it had crashed onto, say, an icy moon, mm. it's hot. Yeah. And it would have melted through and gone down and through. And that, that was the main concern with that one. Um, but it, it's one of those things of if they can, if it's just as easy to crash Cassini into Saturn, then you might as well do it to keep yeah. it safe. Um, but another place where, where people have been getting a bit annoyed <laughs> at various <laughs> space companies for doing mm. things without telling anyone um, <laughs> is uh, actually Starlink. So uh, this was a SpaceX uh, initiative uh, that was launched. It, it, it's, uh, SpaceX are planning on sending 12,000, that's 12,000 um, individual satellites into orbit around the Earth. 
And this is going to create what's known as a mega constellation called Starlink. Um, and the goal of this is to try and create uh, a, a global network for communications and internet, particularly to areas which typically haven't been able to get internet. So places like uh, rural Africa or the outback of Australia, um, places where you just that you can't feasibly put in the infrastructure that you need. Um uh, they launched their first 60 of these satellites on the 24th of May. But what people were annoyed about, particularly astronomers, was the fact that these were very, very bright. Um, they put through these satellites up into the sky and for about two weeks, you could see with the naked eye um, this string of satellites as bright points on the sky. Um it, it, if you look up the, the videos and the pictures, it looks quite freaky, actually. There's, there's, we've actually had a couple of people email into the magazine saying, what is this? I've seen this thing. I don't understand. Um, and it's actually just these satellites in a chain and then they uh, separate out and orbit around the Earth. Um, but the problem is, is they're very reflective. Even when they're in their proper orbit with their solar panels fully extended, um, they still can affect professional um, astronomical uh, observations. And actually, on the 18th of October, the uh, Cerro Tololo Observatory in Chile had their observations ruined by a bunch of these satellites going across. Oh, I didn't hear that. Yeah. 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 So this this is actually, this is a bit of a problem. People are, it, it, it is causing issues. Um, and amateur observers are also worried that this is going to affect their, you know, if, if you're spending hundreds and hundreds of hours trying to create these images and you're having to throw out some because they've got satellites across. Yeah. If you've got 12,000 satellites going across the entire time, are you going to have completely ruined images? Yeah, I suppose there's also issues with uh, space junk and that's something that we've been hearing a lot about this year. Mm. Um, just the increased kind of artificial debris uh, mm. orbiting our planet and I suppose one of the big concerns is that if you did have a collision, it could start to have a kind of chain reaction, like a cascading yeah. effect and, and could yeah. be pretty disastrous. Yeah, so SpaceX have thought about that. Um, they each of the the individual craft have a uh, propulsion that will help them deorbit themselves if they need to, um, but in order for that to work, they need to still be in control. And when they did this first launch back in May, they lost control of three of them. Um, they will eventually deorbit, but it might take much longer. It could it's uncontrolled. They don't know where it's going to come down. Um, and if you scale that up to when they do the full thing of 12,000, if they still have that failure rate, that means they're going to lose control of about 600. Yeah. That's mm. a lot of things flying around in space not knowing what it's doing. Yeah. Mm. Mm. No wonder astronomers mm. are slightly concerned about yes. that. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's all about the balance, isn't it, really? Because, you know, many of us take Wi-Fi and kind of, you know, GPS and things like that for granted, but areas of the world that don't have that and, and they could mm. benefit from this, but you've got to weigh that up with, you know, as you said, uh, as the... Um, Issues around astronomy, but then also these issues around uh, around space junk. Mm. Mm. And it's also yeah. that kind of thing of, you know, that the night sky is something that is it's available to anybody. It's it's an it's a natural resource that's completely global, which there aren't many of those. Um mm. and we're affecting it by putting these things up. And it's also it's not just SpaceX, uh OneWeb, Telsat and Amazon are also thinking about putting up their own mega constellations. Mm. So it's yeah, it's it's a tricky one, that one. Mm, one to watch, definitely. Yeah. So hopefully as we, we go forward into the future, we'll, we'll hear, be hearing more about how that's going. And now while these might have been some of the, the biggest stories of the year, they're by no means the only things that have happened. Um, we don't have time to go into everything, but here's our quick fire guide to the biggest space stories of 2019. In January, a meteor was seen striking the moon during a lunar eclipse while asteroid investigator OSIRIS-REx saw comet-like jets coming off asteroid Bennu. Then in February, NASA announced the demise of the Mars rover Opportunity while Hayabusa 2 touched down on the asteroid Ryugu. Uh, March saw the first confirmed exoplanet discovery by the TESS mission, and SpaceX's Crew Dragon performed its first test flight docking with the International Space Station. In April, InSight detected its first ever Mars quake, while images from the Hubble Space Telescope cast doubt over the Hubble constant, a measure of how fast our universe is expanding. 
In May, we heard about the discovery of the first ever exocomets found in orbit around distant stars. Meanwhile, Sagittarius A star, the black hole at the heart of our galaxy, began to flare up brightly. NASA announced a new mission to Saturn's moon Titan in June, which is going to be called Dragonfly, and Skywatchers reported a bumper crop of noctilucent clouds. In July, Jodrell Bank in Manchester was announced as the home of radio telescope the Square Kilometre Array, while on Hawaii, protesters formed a blockade to prevent construction of the giant 30-metre telescope. In August, interstellar interloper Comet 2I Borisov was spotted speeding into our solar system for the first time. In September, the Hubble Space Telescope found water in the atmosphere of an exoplanet in the habitable zone. In October, it was the first all-female spacewalk while the Nobel Prize for Physics was awarded to astronomers working on the Big Bang and the first exoplanet discovery. Astronomers also revealed that the black hole in the centre of our galaxy recently erupted. November saw Japanese asteroid investigator Hayabusa 2 heading for home, while the European Space Agency held their ministerial meeting, deciding the Space Agency's action plan for the next three years. And finally, in December, astronomers discovered that water is common across exoplanets, but at much lower levels than expected. And as you're listening to this podcast, with any luck, a spaceflight company, Boeing, uh, is scheduled to have launched the first orbital test of its Starliner crew vehicle on 20th of December. So all in all, it's been a pretty busy year. Christmas is the time when many people receive their first telescopes. Uh, So perhaps you put it on your letter to Santa this year, or maybe it was an unexpected surprise. Either way, it can be a daunting prospect getting started in astronomy, especially if you have to find your own way navigating around the night sky. Brighton Astro is one of the most active amateur astronomy societies in the UK. This month, we spoke to society members Phil McAllister and Pete Goodman to get their top tips for beginners. And I started off by asking them how you can prepare for your first night under the stars. The first thing that I that came to mind when thinking, what do you do when you start off? Is you, you go out for the first time, you want to look at the stars, is dress up warm <laughs> because you won't enjoy anything. If you're cold. And I know it sounds a bit flippant, but no one told me and I thought I was going to diet. Yeah, plenty of clothes. That's that's one lesson I would take away from it's, that. It, nothing's fun when you've got cold feet. Um, but in general, yeah, I think you just need to start somewhere, really. So you don't have to be uh, an expert. You don't need expensive equipment to get started. Just get out there and start looking at the night sky, essentially. Yeah, I, I think the other thing that you should people should be aware of is it's not as hard as you think it's not as difficult or as technical as you think which with astronomy because people are always throwing enormous numbers and mind-bending concepts at you you think it's going to be difficult it actually isn't it's just looking up at the sky so don't be intimidated by it just get started and you'll pick it all up much quicker than you think you will I think for a lot of people, it's, it's kind of taking that first glimpse of the night sky and just seeing it filled with stars, if, if you're lucky enough to see it filled with stars. Um, and it, it can maybe be quite daunting. Um, do, do you have any kind of good uh, tips for uh, how people can actually start to learn their way around the night sky? Like, can it kind of learn in terms of learning names and, and spotting planets and, and, and knowing where to look for, for different objects? Yeah, well, um, we can recommend a few uh, books and, and magazines that, that helped us. So, for example... Um, it might be maybe aimed at kids, but there's one called Starfinder for Beginners, which has a forward by uh, Maggie Adrian Pocock. Uh, but it's just fantastic. It's got a few charts to, to get you started. So a few recognizable constellations and where you'll find them in the night sky. And then it just starts you out with some basic star hopping so you can jump from one constellation to the next. Um, and then once you've maybe learned a few of those, uh, another book called Turn Left at Orion is also fantastic. It's got 100 night sky objects that you can see, um, how you go about finding them. And it gives you examples of what you'd be looking for in the night sky to locate them. And then once you set your telescope up or your binoculars up, um, just expect it shows you what you should be expecting to see. And it gives you a bit of an explanation about what those things are. I'd also um, chip in and just say you can get some really good apps for your phone as well so a lot of the Starfinder apps and you know you can take your pick there's plenty out there and they all pretty much do the same thing but that's really useful so you can point your phone at the sky and it will point out show you what you're looking at and that really helps you just get familiar with objects and the relationship between what you can see so if you can see one thing you can then use it to point to another thing so there's loads of things out there that will help you just 
you know, getting a getting in there for the first time. You know, but the, the more you look at anything, the more familiar it becomes, the simpler it becomes, the more you begin to understand the relationships between the objects and what it is you're looking at. And the more you know, the more you find out. So keep at it. Persistence. With anything in life, it's persistence. A lot of time we get readers um, and people on social media asking us the you know what what telescope they should start off with. Um, do do you think that it's it's worth people kind of starting off with a a small refractor, or would you even suggest that they they don't actually buy a telescope to begin with? Can can like do you think you can still see enough with the naked eye and maybe a, a decent pair of binoculars to to kind of get you inspired? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I definitely recommend starting with a naked eye. So if you were to think we're we're in December at the moment, so what we've got up in the night sky right now, um, you've got Orion, which is one of the recognisable constellations and also, I'd say, one of the easiest to find. Um, so if you can find Orion, you can look at the belt, you can find the sword if it's dark enough, and you can spot the Orion Nebula. Uh, close to Orion, you've got the Pleiades. You can, you can find these objects, I think, rather easily. And then you can look them up online to actually see what they are, which is always fascinating. Um, You've also got, say, the plough, which will be visible any time of year from the Northern Hemisphere. From that, you can find Polaris, the North Star. Um, You've got Cassiopeia, which is the W shape, which is also quite easy to spot and recognisable, even even if you're in a city with a lot of light pollution. Um, And from there, you you can often find the Milky Way, which runs through it. So there's an awful lot you can do with the naked eye. Um, just learn to recognize constellations. You can yeah. spot the planets. You can learn about the, the phases of the moon and how it moves uh, across a month. So there's lots you can you can see and do just with the naked eye. And, you know, I would, I'm quite keen on the idea that it, it should never be about kit. No hobby should become about the equipment you use. It's about seeing the stars. And you don't need to go piling in with a £10,000 telescope to enjoy the night sky. So don't make it about the kit. And the other thing I would say is, well, you can get some really good value with secondhand equipment. So if you are just starting out and, you know, you can start off with binoculars, that's absolutely fine, small refractor. You can get some pretty good equipment for a few hundred pounds on eBay or Gumtree or whatever your local sort of secondhand uh, forum is or platform. And I wouldn't rule out that. I mean, a lot of the people that we've spoken to have had telescopes and they get in touch with us because they've had a telescope for years. They've never used it. And quite often they end up just not being used or being sold and they're almost as new. So, yeah, yeah don't go big early. Yeah. Just make it about the stars. Keep it about the stars and looking at the sky. The, the, and then you can build. If, you, if, the, if your interest grows, then let your equipment grow with you. But don't, you know, remortgage your house and then decide you don't actually like it. Yeah, I mean, the, the best telescope is the one that you'll use most, most often. So there's no point in, in buying a huge telescope if it's a, a real pain to use and you end up never actually getting it out. Hmm. What about in, in terms of um, your actual stargazing location? Because I think um, quite a lot of people might be surprised to, to learn that you guys, uh, Brighton Astro, actually stargaze on, on the seafront, which, of course, you've, you've probably got quite a lot of light pollution and things, but, you, but you're so close to, to South Downs. Is, is there a reason that you don't kind of t- take yourselves into the kind of nearby dark sky site? Why do you, why do you um, uh, stargaze on the seafront and, and, and is light pollution a, a problem? Well... We do go into the South Downs National Park as well. And I mean, it's a beautiful place and it is a designated dark sky area. We're very, very lucky to have it. So one of the reasons we choose to go to the seafront sometimes, it's, it's basically because of the ethos of Brighton Astro. It's about getting as many people to join in as we can. So we have to accept that... If you're going to stand in a dark field in the middle of the night, in the middle of the countryside, this isn't going to be a mass participation event. And so what we're trying to do is hit the broadest amount of people we can. And there's still wonderful things you can see, even if you have got quite a lot of background light. So if you're trying to engage people that have a loose interest in astronomy or even people that don't even know they've got an interest in space or not even consciously aware of it anyway. If you can show them the moon in a telescope, if you can show them Jupiter or Saturn, 
that might just be enough for them to want to take it further. And so really that's why we go down the seafront. The light pollution is, you know, you're looking south and at least it's dark as you're looking over the sea. So it's not that bad. But the most interesting objects in the sky you can still see. And I think um, it really is worth sort of hitting a lot of people if you're going to put on events. Absolutely. So we often take uh, several telescopes down to the seafront uh, and especially, I mean, maybe not now, it's mid-December, but in the summertime, we'll have four or five telescopes and it'll be a popular part of town with lots of people uh, walking along the seafront. And they, they see a big group of us mm. and think, what is it they're doing? So they'll come over, what are you doing? Well, we're looking at Saturn or Jupiter. Oh, can I have a look? Yeah, of course. Um, and the, the funny thing that we always notice is uh, the number of people who swear the first time they look through a telescope because they've just <laughs> never seen it before. They've never seen the moon up close. And and saying light pollution, obviously, with with uh, Saturn, Jupiter, the moon and so on, light pollution isn't really a factor. But we've seen um, Saturn, we've seen quite clearly, you could see the, the Cassini division on, on some nights. So it, it is, you know, the seeing isn't isn't so bad, if you're lucky, that actually you can you can really enjoy what you're looking at but it's just the joy of bringing it to hundreds of people as they walk yeah. past. i mean we've had all sorts of and it's been the hindus teenagers the homeless <laughs> i mean brighton is full of all sorts of people and we are and, and it's great because it's a lot of people that wouldn't normally see these things yeah and you do get that gasp you can jump in a car and or you know it will be a car at that time of night because there's no buses running in the countryside there but you can jump in a car and you can get into a really dark location and you can start hunting for things which are harder to see require a bit more skill and patience but if you want to tap into a lot of people and we really like doing that then you've got to go somewhere they're going to be and it's great because you also particularly in the winter you can do it quite early and people can bring the kids along as well you know, and that gets people interested early because kids have all the enthusiasm and, you know, so you, you've got kids and dogs and crowds <laughs> of people and end nights and, you know, it's a laugh, to be honest with you. I mean, that's probably why we do it. And I, I, I kind of, I would really urge other Astro Societies, if they don't, that if you are going to hold some of your events, at least make some of them in the easiest place that it can be for people to get to. You know, and, and spread your wings and get people involved. And you never know where that's going to lead. So, Yeah, I think that's probably, I mean, and just kind of hearing about um, you guys' uh, exploits through your kind of uh, outreach. That's probably another piece of good advice, isn't it, to give to um, uh, newcomers to amateur astronomy is that um, if you're not already, then join your, join your local amateur astronomy society. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, yeah, don't be scared to talk to people and to ask for help. Uh, so local groups are fantastic. You can just learn a lot more quickly and have a lot more fun doing it as part of a group rather than uh, trying to teach yourself, essentially. So we we started, we've only been going for four years. Um, I think part of the reason we started is I bought, a, a <laughs> going against all of this advice, I did buy a, a, a huge 12-inch telescope and I live in a third floor flat with no garden and, and I don't have a car. And I was just looking for people to help me learn how to use it. Um, I was looking for an, a local astronomy group in Brighton and I couldn't find one because there wasn't one. So a city of 300,000 people, we didn't have an astronomy group. Well, there were some dotted around the edge of town, but nothing in the centre. So, yeah, we just started one, essentially, uh, not knowing if anyone would turn up, but but they did. We've we've learned together over the years, um, so we're absolutely not experts. We we really we've been learning as we go, but it's just a fun journey for everyone to to learn together. Yeah, I suppose that's that's the other option. If if you can't find an astronomy society relatively near you, then you could start your own. Um, I mean, how how did you guys actually kind of go about you know getting more members? Was it all kind of done through through uh, so social media and and kind of just contacting people, or or, or did you? Did you do it kind of the old-fashioned way of, of kind of going and, and speaking to people in the pub and, and uh, things like that? Well, it, it was a bit of both, really. I mean, it just started out quite small with word of mouth and Pete basically badgered all his friends into coming along, and we all did. And, <laughs> uh, and then you get pulled into it a little bit, and then you can expand. I think we use um, meetup.com um, to help control the numbers and to help get the word out. 
So that's good. A Facebook page is useful. And a Twitter account. Twitter well. account is excellent. And a website for it. So yeah. th- we don't, there's an awful lot of people who just, like we did, search online for astronomy groups in Brighton and they find us directly through the website. So that's quite nice. Can I, you know, I think one of the things that was always important to us um, when we started Brighton Astro, and just as I said a bit early, we always wanted it to be a broad club. We didn't want it to be, and if you are going to start up um, a club, don't make the club about how clever you are. Make the club as broad as you can. So if you, if you look like you're a group of experts, that's just intimidating for other people. Nobody wants to feel like they're the stupidest person in the room. They just won't go. So make, try to put the emphasis on making it quite a social thing. So we meet once a month on the last Tuesday of the month. And we try to have a – it's tried to be quite a social, fun, friendly event. So if you get that side of it right, people will come back. And, you know, they're not expecting – mind-blowing lectures every time they come we have a nice variety of offers on offer so we have some talks which are quite accessible and easy Mm. you know we have some talks which give you a nosebleed halfway through (laughs) but i mean you know have a nice variety and keep it very open keep it very light this is why when you look at brighton astro our, our symbol is a dog Looking at a moon, you know, it's not the most obscure galaxy that you'll ever find in the night sky. So keep it fun, keep it light. People keep coming back, and you'll be amazed. The appetite for science and space, in particular, is just massive. And we get all sorts of people coming along. We've got a 10 year old genius which comes along who will soon be in charge of the world, I'm sure of it. <laughs> he is amazing. We've got a 102-year-old man, Ken Stevens, that taught astro-navigation to Bomber Command in the Second World War. He still comes regularly. We've got Keith, who's blind and can't even see the night sky, but he still has his fascination in the stars and space. Um, I mean, we did an event with Lucy Green just a couple of months ago, and we sold 220 tickets for that event. The audience is there. The people are there. The appetite is there. It's actually not a hard sell. So the only thing you have to ensure is that you don't scare people off with just how clever you are. So luckily with Phil and I running it, people don't get they meet up and realise very quickly that they're uh, they're among equals. <laughs> um, just, to, just to finish off, um, as this, this podcast will be going out uh, just before... Uh, the Christmas holidays. Um, do you guys have any good plans over Christmas in terms of observing? Is, is there anything you, you particularly want to see, or have you uh, set up your kind of post-Christmas observing schedule? God, if I'm honest, I haven't even thought about it. Yeah, <laughs> Which Christmas. is terrible. Yeah, <laughs> just getting through it in one piece will generally be suffice. I mean, it's quite difficult Christmas because people scatter everywhere. Um, I mean, a, a town like Brighton can empty out at Christmas because you've got so many students and a lot of people who live here were never born here, so they go and see family or whatever. But I'm certainly, I'm going to take one of the club's telescopes and I'm going to maybe just get a little time uh, somewhere, not, you know, I'm not going to go out too deep into the dark, but just so I can just get a little time looking at whatever I choose to look at on that evening. And I, 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 I always at some point, try to look at the planets because they thrill me every time I see it, you know, but I'll try and do a little deeper stuff, I think. Actually, that's, uh, that's also a really good point. Um, so one of the things that Phil just mentioned is that uh, we as a club have a few telescopes and those telescopes are mainly just ones that, that members of the group have donated that maybe they bought in the last 10 years and don't really use that often. And the joy there is that we, as a group, let anyone come along and borrow our telescopes, which always surprises people. Yeah, of course, we've got telescopes sitting here. Why don't you just come and borrow one, take it out somewhere? And if you want a hand setting it up, we can we can do it. So one of the things you mentioned earlier, Ian, was um, about you know buying telescopes. And so one of the things we recommend is, well, before you go and buy a telescope, borrow a couple of ours, try a reflector and a refractor try a huge one and a small portable one see what works for you see what you're most likely to use 
Um, so that's another uh, absolute reason why you might want to think about getting in touch with the club just to get that sort of advice and to, to actually you, you know, try before you buy, try to use some telescopes to see what works for you. Well, actually, Ian, can I just chip in one last point? Um, actually, Pete and I were talking earlier, and you made a really good point that if you are starting a club or if you, you've currently got a club, um, get in touch with your local university as well because not only are they a source of brilliant knowledge. I mean, you, you know, you're talking about specialists in their subjects, but they also have varieties of equipment which they might be able to loan to you for events. And the universities themselves need to do outreach and they, they need to, they want to get in touch and be part of their communities. So it's, it's a win all round there. Mm. So, you know, get hold of your university's physics department and they'll probably be really glad to hear from you. We're really lucky that we're close to the University of Sussex, and they've been brilliant. Yeah, they're they're brilliant. absolutely lovely people, so they've been really helpful with with advice. But yeah, as Phil was saying, they have they've got lots of uh, people who've come down to speak for us as well, which yeah. is, which has been fantastic. So yeah, that's a really good bit of advice as well. Fantastic. Well, thanks very much for your for your advice, um, guys. And I uh, just want to say um, ha- happy observing and clear skies for 2020. And thanks very much for your, your tips. Hopefully it'll inspire people to uh, maybe got a telescope this Christmas to, to get out and get looking up at the night sky. Well, I hope so, Ian. I hope so. And, you know, you're part of an enormous worldwide community of people fascinated by the stars. And it goes back for as long as there's been people walking this earth. People have been staring up at the night skies and it links us all. So... Yeah, let's all get out there. It's uh, it's a beautiful thing to do. That was Phil McAllister and Pete Goodman from Brighton Astro. You can find out more about their astronomy outreach on Brighton Pier in the January issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine. And if you're new to astronomy, take a look at our guide to the best things to see in the night sky throughout 2020, also in this month's issue. There's lots to see in the night sky in January, but if there's one thing you shouldn't miss, it's Orion. The constellation of Orion is one of the most recognisable, and this month it's well-placed in the early evening, except from the 3rd to the 14th of January when the moon will spoil the view. Introduce the constellation to younger eyes by showing what it looks like on a star chart, highlighting the three belt stars in the main pattern centre. When you're outside, set the challenge of finding the belt in the real sky, and once you've found it, use this as a starting point for the rest of the constellation, including Orion's sword. If you have binoculars or a scope, see if you can catch a glimpse of the glowing nebula at the sword's heart. It's worth also mentioning Betelgeuse, the red supergiant star and the top left shoulder of Orion. Reports started coming in in early December that it had faded quite a lot and it's turned out to be quite a deep fade. Normally it's brighter than another red star, Aldebaran in Taurus, but it's now fainter, now at about magnitude 1.1 or 1.2. People are quite excited because Betelgeuse could go supernova at any time, in which case it would shine bright enough to be visible during the day. However, Betelgeuse is also a variable star uh, with well-documented periods of variation, and it's just as possible that this is a regular, though low, period of dimming. So that's it from us from this month and for this year. Uh, we'll be back with the podcast in February. Uh, until then, you can always pick up the January issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine, where we give you tips on how to stay warm during the cold observing nights, list the top 20 things to see in 2020, talk to Buzz Aldrin as he celebrates his 90th birthday and look back over the Spitzer Space Telescope as it retires. And that's not forgetting our regular sections that will help you unlock the wonders of the night sky, find the right equipment to observe it with, and discover the best things to see after dark this month. From all of us here at BBC Sky Night magazine, goodbye, and we hope you have a great new year. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Bateman and Ben Hewitt. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to iTunes, Acast or Spotify. <laughs>